Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Ski Instructor Podcast. My name is Dave Burrows. I'm the director and owner of Snowpro Ski School based here in Val d'Illier in Switzerland. Looking out the window today, it's overcast snow. Even though it's the middle of June, snow has fallen on the tops of the Don Midi here. We've got some real weird weather going through uh, right now, which is very, very frustrating because you don't know what it's going to do on any given day. And I don't think the, the guys who run the Swiss Meteo app even know what it's going to do any day they've got this kind of weird um predictive weather thing that they've got where they sort of half commit to the uh to the weather forecast and then tell you what it might also do and you can as a, as a consequence it kind of doesn't really tell you anything so um looks like it's going to brighten up and this kind of uh this last bit will have just be the last of it i'm hoping but um but yeah, it's been it's been a strange few weeks for sure. I'm fully into the thick of the uh, the sort of the interseason. Um, I regard that as the period kind of May, June, July, and August when we have that's the time when we have to get everything done in preparation for the next winter because for us sales season starts in about end of August, start of September, and. Um, and yeah, so everything's got to be tidied up. There's a whole bunch of writing to do. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that needs um, rewriting and a whole bunch of things in the background that, that really um, need tidying up so that I'm comfortable going into next season. Plus, I'm on the recruitment trail. So I'm also looking for a couple more ski instructors to join my team for this winter and um, waiting for those CVs to, to start to trickle in. Um, so yeah, it's busy 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 time of year um however that doesn't stop the uh, the podcast interviews and i have here part one of an interview that i did with harry mcfadden so uh, some of you may know harry um he's a lovely lovely guy uh, kiwi guy and he um well i think he should be just about getting on snow now at the start of the uh, the New Zealand season. So just because um, there's no snow here uh, doesn't mean that people aren't skiing somewhere. So um, so yeah, those guys are just getting going and, and Harry's working um, with Rookie Academy this season down there and, uh, and also runs a business called Skiko, um, which is based in Europe for the European winter. Um, Harry's a trainer with the, um, with the uh, New Zealand Association and he's also qualified in multiple other... Um, uh, ski instructor associations, which you will hear as you uh, as, as you listen to part one of this episode. Um, in part one, we we talk about um, the upcoming season. Um, we talk about fatigue between ski seasons, um, how one gets going at the start of a new ski season, um, journey to full cert, and the differences between between ski instructor systems. And um, I had a really really lovely chat, and uh, and I, I hope that you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. Um, so without further ado, uh, let's get going. And um, I started off uh, speaking to Harry about the upcoming Kiwi season. Three weeks. It's opening in three weeks. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And where are you skiing out of? Because you're going to be skiing with rookies, right? Yeah. So we uh, are based in Wanaka, 
Uh-huh. And we ski mainly on Treble Cone. Okay. And Treble Cone is not open for another six weeks, but the other mountain in Wanaka, Cadrona, opens uh, in three weeks. Wow. That's not long at all. So you've gone from one kind of from European winter, you've had, what, maybe a month off and then back on snow in three weeks? I've had, yeah, I'm probably having about seven, seven to eight weeks off from this, from this last um, season. Okay. I've been off snow, yeah, I've been off snow for a month now, so yeah, seven weeks wow. off. How do you, um, we're just going to go straight into this, so I'm not going to do like the big welcome or anything, but I'm, um, I'm curious to know like how, how you cope with that. If someone said to me right now that I would have to put my boots back on and go skiing, I would just be like, no, not interested. Um, yeah, I'm not quite there yet. I'll probably go skiing in July or August, but I'm not ready for at least a month or two. Do you like... Do you get any of that kind of fatigue, or are you uh, are you just kind of crazy, crazy to go for it? A lot of me is just crazy and keen to get into it and go skiing, uh, but I do get that fatigue, absolutely, yeah. like like anyone else. And I believe that what allows me to get through it easily mm. is because it's a change of scenery, okay. it's a change of people I'm skiing with and it's a change of work I think if I lived in Zermatt for example and just skied year round there I'd get a lot more over it yeah yeah I could see that I could see that it's um yeah it's it, I don't know I've gone through this weird thing at the moment I injured my back quite badly in December um just before just before the season it's a miracle really that I managed to make it through the season without kind of re-injuring it but the 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 I've kind of got this thing going on at the moment. So I went on the mountain clean-up day yesterday. We took a whole bunch of kids up the mountain here and just searched for trash and kind of took... It was really cool, actually. We like, found all sorts of things, but like uh, it was a really nice thing to do. And it's nice to see the the kids looking out there, the local schools here, like looking after the mountain and cleaning up, you know, after all these people have been and gone. And... Um, and uh, but like today, I'm really, really feeling that. Like my body seems to be reacting. You know, all it does is it just has like massive inflammation and kind of I'm really stiff the day after. And all I've essentially have done is gone for a walk on the mountain. You know, it's not like big. It's not big exercise that I've done, but I'm still struggling. My body's kind of not really wanting to kind of absorb that 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 kind of work at the moment. It's uh, it's, it's really, really frustrating. Um, but I wonder how much of that is is actually part of, you know, it's still fatigued from the ski season. It's still fatigued from, like, skiing every single day for, like, you know, five or six months or something. I'd say it's probably potentially quite a lot of fatigue from the, from the ski season. Like, I personally do find that I need seven weeks off at least, um... And then, as well as that, when I start the season in New Zealand, it's not full power straight away. Yeah. It's kind of three weeks of it being quite slow. Uh, There's not many pistes open. I'm not working every single day, so it's kind of a slow build into it. Yeah. I think it would be a lot harder if I just went straight in full power instantly. Are you able to go straight into it full power instantly or, or are you, do you have to kind of build it up from, 
from a low level. The reason I ask that is because I'm. It take when I get back on snow, I have to do like a few, at least a few days of kind of slow, basic parallel stuff to get feeling back. Skiing is not. It's not a natural thing for me. It doesn't. You know, it's not. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't skiing from the age of two like some of the locals who just jump on skis and rip. You know, like it takes a while for me to get the sensation back and the feeling. Like, how about you? Do you do you have to build it up or do you just go straight in for it? Uh, it takes me, I'll do a couple of slow runs, slower runs, mm -hmm. and then I'll go out and try carving, uh, on moderate terrain and I can pretty much get it all back within a day, okay. I'd say. Mm -hmm. I think the, the thing that takes me a week to get right or maybe even two weeks, is short terms. Mm -hmm. For me, being able to create balance on the edge in a more performance short term takes me a lot longer. My default is a more basic twisty short term, yeah. and I have to build up to that more carved performance short term over a few weeks. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, that, that certainly, yeah, that, that kind of echoes my own experience. But I've kind of, as I've got, more used to kind of building up and I've kind of got a plan now. That's what I would try and do is just go, maybe I'll go to, you know, Sassfay or something in, in August and just like get, you know, do that slow stuff and then just kind of keep it in tune. Maybe go once a month until the ski season really gets going or, or until kind of we start working here in October, November. Um, that's kind of, you know, because you've got to be presentable when you kind of first show up, you know, for, for, for client playing, paying lessons. That's why I do all that stuff in the summer um, is because you kind of, it take, yeah, just like I say, it just takes a while for it to come back for me, you know, to remember all the things. And I keep a note, a notebook actually of all the things that I was working on last season that really worked. And then, you know, I can look back at that and say, okay, that's where I was, that's kind of my jumping off point, these are the things that we're working on, now let's see see where we end up now, you know, where we can go with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's really important, you know, remembering those kind of technical cues or little uh, focus points that you were working on from the last winter mm. because that can allow you to get back into it. I feel quicker and Personally, I believe that I like to finish each winter with some really clear cues. And if I think about them just mentally, like, you know, every couple of days or something, mm -hmm. I find that I can get back into it a lot quicker. Yeah. I think if I, I never completely switch my brain off from skiing because I'm obsessed with it. Mm. And I think maybe as well, if I switch my brain off out of skiing, it would take me longer to get my feet back. Yeah. I do think that mental training really assists me. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Like it's a, the, the the I'm thinking more these days about the business of skiing, like you know running and creating this kind of thing that I've created. Um and I also well for me I'm finding lately it's kind of nice to switch off. I've got a couple of little other projects that I'm kind of working on so it kind of I don't think about the technicalities of skiing too much over the summer until I get back on snow and then I'm kind of there but I've got you know I've kind of got so much other stuff going on but it's um 
I can see where that's coming from. I think that's why it's useful to kind of keep some notes, you know, like or, or at least have, like you say, have a clear idea of where you were, and then you can just pick that up and say, right, okay, now I know what I was working on. Um, so yeah, the bit that, that I find that comes slowly to me is the ability to kind of stand is is that kind of um, oh, what would you call it like a like the rotation so being able to stand above your your leg and like rotate the ski you know using the legs that's yep. the one that does not come very quickly that takes a few weeks to come at the start of the season it's like that ability to kind of corkscrew the the, the leg into the ground is is the one that takes the longest to come kind of at the start of the season I'm always kind of just hanging the leg out there and I'm not really getting over it and then I have to try and try and remember those initial trigger movements right actually my initial movement needs to be out over the new outside ski and then you know then you can start to work the leg as opposed to just hanging it out there and waiting for something to happen um, that's kind of always the one that, that for me it takes the longest to come back up, you know apart from everything else yeah yeah I think it's interesting we all have our own little individual things that we need to warm up with and yeah. to get ourselves back into skiing and that's where I think it's also really important to have like a bit of a personalised back to snow plan for yourself or anyone that wants to become or be skiing at a high level Yeah, because you know what you need to try and dial it on because you have a clear understanding of where you were at the when you last skied and you know hopefully you've got a clear understanding of a couple of focus areas that you know uh challenge you at the start of the winter yeah yeah exactly and i think that's why i go to that basic parallel thing is because you know the basic parallel you can really get that sensation of right i'm moving out over the outside ski now and then I'm gonna sort of screw that ski into the ground, and that kind of brings it all together for me. That one, that one thing, because you can kind of feel that that sort of rotation of your legs under you, a little bit like you sometimes see those videos of like um, what's his name? Is he Richie Berger, who's like doing yeah. that stuff on the snowblades? Uh, not snowblades. What am I called? Inline skates. That kind of yeah. feeling is that. That's what I'm trying to trying to find. Um, but anyway. We've jumped ahead a little bit to technical chat, um, <laughs> which is like, um, I want to find out a little bit about you. Like, uh, so where are you, you're, where are you now? Where are you living right now? So right now I'm in Wanaka, New Zealand. And now that, is, that is a beautiful place. Have you been there? I have. I visited, I traveled around New Zealand for six weeks, years ago, like 15 or 20 years ago or something like that. And... I was thinking this last night, it's like, I was going to talk to you, it's like this, oh, I'm going to sound so old, but like technology is just amazing, isn't it? We're having a conversation that is essentially back and forth in semi-real time. Presumably the communication that we're having is going through several satellites and God knows how it's getting there. But I remember being in New Zealand, I can't remember exactly where I was, but on a payphone calling my mum. And like there being like a three second delay on the phone call. And I, I was thinking to myself, wow, like that, we are so, so far away from home. It's unbelievable. You know, like it, you don't really get a, an impression of just how far away, like 
New Zealand is from Europe until you kind of I hadn't really got an idea until I'd had that I was like wow we are seriously seriously a long way away from home and um, but now yeah it's extraordinary but I, we toured around Monica and uh, uh, had a look there I really liked that and there were some other places um, I can't remember the names of them all now but I just we went slightly out of tourist season and it's just a, oh, what a place what a place New Zealand is it's just extraordinary yeah, yeah New, New Zealand is New Zealand is amazing, and yeah, it is it is so far away. But as you say, with like modern communication, um, it's so easy to talk to people now. Mm. And uh, you know, even like I talk to a lot of my skiing friends back in Europe uh, quite regularly about um, different things to do with skiing, and it's just so easy to communicate now, which is fantastic. And I think it makes New Zealand feel not as far away. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it's a very, very long way away. And people think it's crazy when I say this. It's one day on a plane. <laughs> and people go, one day on a plane, that's so long. And I'm like, yeah, it is long, but it's still only one day. But you guys you are used be- to that. Like, you don't mind. Like the, the people from the Southern Hemisphere just don't regard plane travel as a thing. Like I, I get freaked out and go over. I've got a flight next week to go to Romania, and it's two and a half hours. I'm like, wow, that's so long. And... <laughs> It's like a day on a plane. I just can't even imagine it. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah, it's um, it's yeah, it's definitely yeah, it's it's just something that I'm so used to now. Yeah. You know? But it, this is my this is going to be my thirteenth winter based here in Wanaka. Uh-huh. Uh Which is pretty exciting to say that even and um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be fun. That's really cool. The place there's to, there's there's the place that I really remember that led me to quite a few other places in their own way, but was a place called Lake Tacapo, which is not far yep. from Wanaka. And there they've got it's it's the most beautiful place. Listen, if you ever get a chance to go, it's absolutely extraordinary. Um, I'm actually driving through tomorrow. Ah, amazing! So there there is um, there's a statue there. To that's sort of dedicated to the border collie, the dog, and um, it's kind of there because you know it's what allowed the initial settlers to New Zealand to kind of you know do the whole sheep thing and and, and you know make make everything um, you know that that sort of whole industry that are, that revolves, revolves around New Zealand lamb and all that stuff, and um, and there's a country like I say there's a statue there to that particular dog and like without this dog we couldn't have done any of this. And um, that directly led to me kind of getting a dog when I came back home, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and anyway, so it's just, that's the one of the things I do really remember from the South Island um, was that. And the other bit was going all the way down to the bottom, I think. So is it a place called Dunedin, right at the bottom of the South Island? Yes. That, that feels like the end of the world. There's like nothing after that. Yeah, oh, that's probably Bluff that you're talking about. Dunedin is a city down the south, but if you go to Bluff, yeah, there is it's it's like it's kind of like there's yeah, there's just nothing past it. I suppose the only place that would be similar in the UK would maybe be John O'Groats or something, but yeah. still you've got the you know areas north of that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, cool. So tell me about your skiing background how did you get into this sport that we all love and how how you know where's it taken you so basically i i didn't learn to ski as a young young kid mm-hmm. but i 
I uh, the first time I ever ski- went skiing, I was um, eleven. Okay. Actually, um, I grew up in Christchurch, which is the biggest city in the South Island, and the Christchurch actually has a lot of places to ski within about two hours away. Mm-hmm. Mount Hutt being the uh, the biggest and kind of most well known ski area near Christchurch. Mm-hmm. And when I was eleven, my dad took me up to Mount Hutt because uh, I. Um, begged him to take me skiing because I remember some of my friends had been and it sounded like a lot of fun. And I went and I just absolutely, absolutely loved it and really got into it. And But I could only ski, you know, kind of a couple times a year, whether my dad took me up there or uh, friends, parents, things like that, if they were going up. Mm-hmm. But then when I was maybe 14... I, my parents actually, for a short time, bought a business in Wanaka and ran it in Wanaka, and that allowed me to ski a lot more. Mm-hmm. So from about 14, I probably was skiing maybe 30, 30 days a year. Okay. And I remember just deciding then that um, when I left school, I was going to do my uh, level one and two qualification with uh, NZSAA Uh because I just loved it and I loved the idea of being able to uh, ski for a job but also use that job to be able to travel and go to many different places around the world. Mm. So when I turned 18, I signed up for a level one and two program in, uh, in Wanaka that I did during the 2000 and. 10 winter mm-hmm. and I haven't stopped since and I have also left the country every single year to ski somewhere else overseas and work and uh, experience skiing in a different place where is um, isn't that great to know at such a young age that that's what you want to do like it, it, it took me a while to find my way kind of back to skiing, but um, you know, learned a fair bit on the way. I suppose every every decision you take takes you somewhere for a reason. Um, but it's lovely to have that clarity at such a young age to know that this is what you want to do. Yeah, I just, I, I just, I just knew. Uh, I really, I really just knew. I remember just thinking, oh, it would be the coolest job, and a lot of. Um, New Zealand, it's quite traditional for ski instructors from New Zealand to work in other parts of the world Yeah. Um, during the off-season. You know, I know, like, in other countries, the odd person might do one season in Australia, New Zealand, or South America. Mm. But um, a lot of Kiwis do travel. So I remember doing lessons when I was younger and asking the instructor, oh, where, where do you where do you go? And they'd be like, oh, I work in Vail in Colorado or I work in Whistler. Mm. And I remember just thinking like, oh, that's the coolest thing. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's lovely. But you do have that culture of travel there. You know, you meet, I remember that, you know, from living in London, you'd meet so many Kiwis and Australians. You're like, these, you know, these guys are just happy to leave and just go. It's, like, it's, it's almost like a rite of passage, you know. You guys just go. Um, you leave and then, you know, eventually maybe you find your way back. But there is, there is this, 
there's definitely this culture of kind of getting away from the island and, and going to, 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 to explore. Absolutely. It's definitely a cultural thing that, you know, we also share with the Australians. But um, I've always found myself still always having a lot of uh, kind of desire to come back to New Zealand as well because I love it down here. But I think I've developed that appreciation by traveling Mm -hmm. because I have also never not come back. I've always left for the Northern Hemisphere winter, but I've always come back for the New Zealand winter. Yeah. Do you get any summer? Like, when do you? Uh, I'm guessing if you're a bit like me, you're not necessarily a beach person. But like, do you? Do you ever? Because that that's the danger, isn't it? By doing back to back winters all the time, is that you just don't you miss out on that kind of seasonality. Um, I find that I do need the summer now. I very much look forward to it, um, as opposed to kind of you know, living in this sort of monochrome world that you live in during the, the, the winter where everything's kind of a shade of black or white and that's it. But the the, I, the my favourite season is the autumn, funnily enough. I absolutely love it and I love the colours and I love the kind of temperature in it. and then, you know, as it's sort of turning towards winter. But do you get the chance to go and, I don't know, get some sunshine somewhere or are you, you kind of just happy doing winters right now? Well, I definitely try and get as much sun as possible while still doing winters. So the way I like to think about it is the best part about doing two winters a year is you get two springs. Mm -hmm. And the New Zealand spring turns very quickly to quite warm, quite hot. Uh So October, November, uh, some years I stay into December, so that is summer in New Zealand. Um, So I try and get a couple of months of relatively warm weather in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also try, like, I haven't done it for a few years because of COVID, but um, a couple of years ago, my wife and I, at the end of the season, went down to uh, Sicily mm-hmm. and enjoyed some sun in the med. Some years I've also, at the end of the New Zealand season, gone up to Fiji because it's nice. Fiji's only a three-hour flight from New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. So I get summer weather, but like as much as I can. But I don't have long periods of summer. Yeah. Okay. But it's enough, right? Enough to kind of get that that kind of vitamin D hit, whatever you need. Ab- absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And um, I'd like to try and get a little bit more, to be honest with you, but not not too much more. Maybe just, yeah, a few more weeks here or there would be quite nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, that's cool. And so then that skiing journey has also taken you to different multiple kind of ski instructor systems as well. So you've had a good look round at some of the other systems that, that, that exist in the world. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So... Yeah, I started out with the uh, NZSAA, the New Zealand um, Snow Sports Constructors Alliance, our association down here. Mm-hmm. And that, like I was saying, gave me the opportunity to travel and gave me the exposure to different countries. So my first kind of cross-association um, 
expose, you might say, was with the CSIA, the Canadians, Mm -hmm. because I worked in Canada and I sat the CSIA level three just as something to do that I thought was interesting and cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a good good challenge for me, you know, to be able to try and switch my um, understanding of their kind of teaching theory and terminology, mm-hmm. but also, um, you know, make some minor adjustments uh, in my technique to be able to fit that kind of Canadian um, mold. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was my that was my first thing I did with them. And I did originally have the intention of trying to sit the Canadian level four as well, but it's I've never been uh, back in Canada or a place around the world that the CSIA offer their exams or offer their level four exams. So yeah, yeah, maybe one day, maybe one day I'll finish off the Canadian system. Mm-hmm. And but, uh, yeah. And- so I know that if I was listening to this podcast, I would want to dive deeper into that question. So in terms of, but maybe we also need to talk about other stuff before we dive into these questions. But I really want to, I would like to drill down on those differences and say, you know, what what other different things that they're talking about? What are the different teaching things that they're talking about? We should have that conversation. But before we do that, you also did you also dabble in the Basie system too, the British system? Yes. So I have done the four tech. Okay. I did the Basie four tech in uh, March two thousand twenty twenty one. Okay. Verbia. Yeah. I purely did the Basie four tech because I know it's a you know it's a it's a very strong high level exam. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to test myself and my ability to, to go and uh, go and do that and have some more kind of a deeper understanding of the um, Bayesian Association. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, the other ones that I've done, I've also set my IAZ conversion. Okay. I did, I did that. Uh, in February 2021 as well with um, with Jamie Kagan. Okay. Um, so I converted all my qualifications and then did their uh, Level 2 Mountain Safety, which is their ISAA card level Mountain Safety. Yeah, so yeah. now I'm a full Level 4 member of IAZ. Okay. And the other international things I've done is I did the – I did a conversion course with the SAJ, the Japanese oh, ski right. instructor, uh, the Ski Association Japan, mm-hmm. SAJ, because I wanted to do the technical competitions yeah. in Japan, and we can get into that a little bit oh, I'd love to. at some point if you'd like. Um, yeah. And you must hold a Japanese qualification in order to do that. So oh, I wow. did their equivalence test. Uh-huh. And... The only other association I've had experience with is I don't hold a qualification, but I have attended and worked with um, a lot of PSAA people Mm -hmm. when I was working in the United States. So I attended some of their training days 
And I also trained people for PSAA levels when I worked in the US. Okay. So I don't hold an American qualification, but I've got quite a good understanding of what they talk about. All right. So here's the question then, and you can you can explore this in the depth that you want. We're all essentially talking about the same stuff, just with different names on it. I completely agree. Okay, so, so far, so good. <laughs> yeah, effectively, we're trying to do the exact same thing. We're trying yeah. to demonstrate accurate skiing so we can show our customers what we want them to try and achieve is the way I think about it. Yeah. The experience I've had with other associations and also having conversations with friends who have been involved in other associations is that they prior different associations prioritize different things higher or lower. Yeah. So some associations might be looking for their big thing might be early edging, early grip, you know, early ski performance in the arc. Yeah. Some, which is quite an outcome-based, uh, you know, kind of priority. Mm -hmm. Some associations might be really prioritizing form and kind of the look, the look that they want. Mm -hmm. Some associations might be prioritizing, you know, it's still kind of like form, but like a specific movement pattern mm -hmm. that they want to see their instructors achieving through the kind of levels of performance, you might say. And in order to pass exams in different countries, you will have to make slight technical adjustments. But at the end of the day, all associations agree on a flexed, kind of like, you know, a level of flexion through the joints to be able to have a mobile athletic stance or posture, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. All associations believe in a round turn shape to control speed, balance on the outside ski, and you edge the skis with the lower body. Okay. So yeah, I mean that. I mean th there are certain fundamentals within skiing that don't don't change, and haven't changed for quite a long time even with the advent of more modern equipment. A ski is still a ski. We've still got to kind of bend it in the right way in order to get the ski to do what we want it to do, depending on what our intention is. And Ab absolutely. And I think, like, the big... What a lot of people see, in my opinion, a lot of ski instructors see, is when you look at the Japanese, okay, and you look at how the Japanese ski, mm. a lot of people look at it and go, that's different, that's wrong. Or they might, they might have a kind of a negative emotional reaction straight away to it because it's so different to what they're used to seeing. Yes. And what I've found through working in Japan and, like, I've skied with some like, you know, high-level Japanese demo team members, mm -hmm. is when you ski on the snow in Japan, it's groomed really well. 
but it is the softest groomed snow you've ever skied on. Okay. It's, it's like if you have a really cold, dry powder day, yeah. but then they groom it uh-huh. and you try and carve on it. Okay, so and it doesn't support massive loads. It doesn't support, um, you know, you go through the surface, right? Exactly, exactly. It doesn't have that big support. So a more inclined position with wider arm carriage and a narrower stance with the legs is actually what is required in order to create ski performance in that snow. Yes. Because if you look at the skis themselves in the snow, Mm -hmm. they are doing what you might say a traditional European ski technique is asking of them. Mm -hmm. It's just the image is very different because of the snow conditions. Like if you go to Japan and try and really arc it on that soft snow, if you've got a good touch for the snow and a good kind of understanding of where you need to put your body in order to create ski performance, almost everyone narrows their stance, widens their legs, sorry, narrows their stance, widens their arms, and inclines a little bit more. Mm. It just naturally happens because of the conditions. Yeah. Yeah, of course, right? Because you've got to bank up the snow underneath two skis in order to balance against it. That totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Huh? Okay, so so there so there's there there I think we know this by now, but the, the their technique I'm saying it anyway for the sake of saying it, but the the their technique has developed according to their needs of the local market. And that will be the same throughout all of the other systems, right? Well absolutely. And like Japan uh, the Japanese technique is a very stylistic um, approach. It's, they're not trying to look like ski racers. They're trying to have a stylistic approach that allows them to ski with fluidity and flow. Uh, sorry, fluidity and, and you know, clean movements mm. around the whole mountain. That's what the customers want, and that's how the technique has developed. Is that- they like the look. Is that cultural to the Japanese? Is that a thing that like I don't know enough about Japanese culture to to, but I but I do know that they're quite into the aesthetics of everything. Yes, I I I believe that it is. It's part of. It is part of. I don't want to speak out. Speak wrongly and one of my Japanese friends is like no you got that wrong but uh, you can direct my... him towards me I'm leading you to a certain place anyway so <laughs> <laughs> from my foreigner perspective of doing four seasons in Japan yeah yes it's quite a Japanese thing to you know assume a certain look and try and go for it 100% you see it in the fashion sense when you walk around the streets of Tokyo yeah you know because it's not just the technique the, the ski instructors, they love to be quite flamboyant. They, they wear amazingly colourful ski clothing. We call them carving suits, and they'll have, like, orange and purple and green with all these lines over it and color, neon-coloured zips. And, um, you know, all the top guys, they have, you know, um, you know like, colourful goggles, colourful poles. Yeah. It's all about the look and the image and being... A demonstrator. Mm-hmm. And so, 
we'll just shelve the the Japanese thing for a second because I want to come back to you and talk to you about technical champs since I've got someone who's you know trying to do them. Um, the finally the the the. Uh, then if you had to talk about the the New Zealand system where what has the technique that has come out of that what what kind of local needs is that serving so um, the New Zealand technique first of all I'll give you a little bit of background the New Zealand technique has really been a, a melting pot because of, as we spoke earlier, New Zealand is travelling to go overseas mm -hmm. to um, ski and they've brought information back, but also a lot of internationals have come down to New Zealand for a season or two and they have rubbed some of their technique off on us. Mm -hmm. our, our technique has um, effectively been developed to ski in quite challenging conditions. New Zealand can have fantastic skiing, but it can also be really quite hard sometimes, mm -hmm. like uh, lack of snow, challenging, uh, you know, like challenging surface to ski on, poor visibility, things like that, and quite narrow runs. Mm -hmm. So, like, for example, in our... Um, in the NZSAA, our high-performance carving turn is not called a long turn. Okay. It's called a dynamic medium. All right. Because if you do a long turn in New Zealand, there's probably not enough room on the slope. Um, it's okay. narrow, and we have a lot of people on our slopes, so a long turn isn't particularly functional for um, New Zealand's conditions. Mm -hmm. We also don't have a very large focus in the New Zealand Association and also in terms of lessons that come into the ski schools on mogul skiing because we don't really get that many bumps. Okay. There are certain isolated areas in the resorts that do bump up, but in general, New Zealand doesn't really get that many bumps because it's a very windy place. The mm. South Island and the North Island, you know, they're but quite narrow farmland on east and west coast, high mountain ranges in the centre with the ocean either side. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of wind. When I'm in the Alps, people say, oh, it's windy today. They're putting that lift on wind hold. I always think to myself, oh, in New Zealand, that would run at least for 30 kilometres higher winds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's so windy in New Zealand that the bumps don't really form. Okay. So... We, in our exams, and also what we'd present to our um, guests on the mountain, we have what's called, for our kind of off-piste, we call it situational skiing. So skiing to the situation off-piste. So yeah. that may be crud, ice, um, slush, yeah. you know, powder. And in our exams, we'll mark people's situational skiing. Huh. So... If there are bumps, we will do bumps, but there's probably not going to be. If it's like cruddy, wind-packed off-piste, we'll just mark people's ability to ski in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because a lot of New Zealanders do want to ski off-piste. Mm -hmm. A lot of our customers do want to ski off-piste, but the, the, the snow is challenging. Yeah, I can imagine. 
because it's quite it sounds almost scottish like this the the the, the conditions that you're talking about you know sort I've of wild landscape heard it's like a better version of scotland scottish skiing yeah yeah okay and that's i mean the scottish skiing is kind of renowned for coming and going it's kind of variable um you know like it will be there one day and then the next day the wind will have taken it all away and all that sort of stuff um it's uh it's i don't know i haven't skied there yet it's on my list but it's a long way away from where i live now um <laughs> not to a kiwi though um it's on my it's on my list too yeah yeah so i don't know maybe we'll do it maybe we'll get there i've got a lot of other i've got a lot of other things on our bucket list there's a big list on our fridge which is like places we want to go and none of them are ski areas so um we'll see we'll see but uh so then so I like that. I really like that idea of kind of situational skiing because that's something that I've we do a lot when we talk about this with our work with sort of schools where we talk about the philosophy of what we're going to teach the kids. And we kind of talk a little bit about what, you know, just skiing what the mountain gives you on any given day. If you've been out here for quite a long time, you kind of you notice how the seasons and how the weather changes and you see repeating patterns of snow and situations and you learn to adapt to those situations um, which is quite an important thing but if you if you go with the goal of kind of right today is you know 23rd of January we're only going to go and do this thing that's my lesson plan but the mountain isn't giving you that surely it's much better to kind of get up the top of the mountain look at what kind of conditions you're given that day and then adapt your plan according to that right you know today is a day where there's bumps everywhere let's go and learn out how to ski bumps you know today isn't necessarily the day that we're going to go and do the other thing that's i really like that concept and that idea absolutely and i think I think that's really important because if you're trying to teach skillful skiers or you're trying to become a more skillful skier yourself, you've got to be able to understand the situation that's in front of you or about to be in front of you and you know have the, the ability to make those technical and tactical adjustments in order to maintain flow and rhythm mm. in those conditions. And I think that's what really shows an amazing skier. Like, it's interesting you mentioned earlier, Richie Berger. I've skied, I've been lucky enough to ski with Richie oh, a couple of times, actually. Very jealous. And he is the master of that. Hmm. The absolute master of that, you know, he had a real strong, like, situational intelligence. Hmm. Yeah. What do I need to do now to, to get what I want to do? Yeah, the uh, it's one of the things that I do at the start of a lot of my lessons actually is that I'll say to the client or clients or whoever it is that I've got in front of me, so right, okay, what we're going to do now is we're just going to go skiing for the first run, and when we get to the bottom of this, I want you to give me a sort of an analysis. So we're sort of doing a bit of both. We're doing a warm up, so we're warming up by skiing essentially, but the other one is I want you to give me an analysis of what the snow is like. You know, tell me all about the snow that you've understood from this first run that we're going to do. 
and normally you get quite some some quite cool feedback you know from people and say oh well it's a bit like this it's a bit like this and so okay cool so let's go and work out how we ski this kind of snow what kind of movements are going to work on this kind of snow um if you know if the lesson is that sort of focus but it's something that i often say and i think it's really important to make that judgment you know we do it kind of as instructors we kind of do it a little bit automatically you know you it might take you sometimes a, a, a sort of a half a run to work out what the snow's like but but it's because we have that sort of deep you know we, that deep body of experience of saying okay it's this kind of snow now i know how i need to ski but the the clients don't always you know they need to think more deliberate deliberately about that particular thing absolutely and i think that's a really key point to take into your teaching and when you're working with guests because like the, i i you know try and do similar things when i'm teaching you know give the uh guest a question or a, a focus point to think about ski for a little bit then you engage in a conversation with them to find out kind of where their head's at in terms of confidence and understanding of the situation so then you can clearly tailor the lesson to them mm. yeah agree agree okay so then is there anything else in the in the in the kiwi system that sort of jumps out i think that situation awareness thing is, is an amazing one i think that's really cool but is there anything else that's in there that needs a mention which is kind of specific to the region specific specific to the region i i can't think of really actually anything off the top of my head that that is really kind of oh actually there's not a technical um thing it's more of a a, a teaching a teaching uh mm. side but the nzsaa has a lot of um really strong kind of teaching structure you might say mm -hmm. uh like really clear ways to build a lesson and adjust a lesson or build a lesson plan but adjust it as uh you're working through the lesson to keep tailoring it to the guest's needs but also how to present information and uh, present a progression very clearly. Because in New Zealand, we have to train our instructors to be able to teach at a strong level because we have the regular lesson in New Zealand is the group lesson. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our instructors uh, might be a fresh kind of uh, – level one or, you know, they've just done the season before kind of a 10-week, you know, gap program yep. where they do the uh, level one and the level two, hmm. and then they're out in the school holidays with 15 kids yeah, or a 15-adult beginner lesson. So we've got really clear teaching structure in place so they actually have a framework to work off because some are, like, you know, Otherwise, it, it would be very hard for them to be able to deliver a clean lesson to the guests. Mm -hmm. I did notice that last year because a lot of our a lot of the um, a lot of our instructors are a little bit spoiled because my ski school only does private lessons essentially, um, okay. and so they get very used to uh, the the less experienced ones are not 
used to that kind of, oh, I've got a group of, you know, a massive group of kids, you know, and I kind of joke about it often because <laughs> they just get spoiled by all these lovely, lovely lessons that they get to deliver in a private setting. It's like, oh, you guys don't know anything, you know, like uh, I remember the days when I was doing, you know, massive groups of kids and you had to kind of got kids here, there and everywhere, blah, 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 you know, they're doing that old man shouts at the wind thing. And, um, and uh, it's, it's noticeable, you know, that you get, when you, you've done a bit of that work, you get certain group management skills that become very useful in that situation. Absolutely, I completely agree with you because when I think back as well, I'd been a ski instructor, I think, for about three years before I'd ever taken a full day private. Oh, yeah, you, so you, like, you learned to manage the mob, right, first, before you get, yeah, yeah it's the other way around in my ski school. Oh, you get all these lovely yeah. lessons. And they go, yeah, yeah, I know. I sound so old, don't and, and that's why as well, like, because I think um, that kind of model of a ski school that only does private lessons, it is, from my experience, quite a traditionally European thing. There are some ski schools in Japan that do do it, but it's definitely a European thing. And whenever I meet instructors that might be struggling to, let's say they're doing Bayesi, struggling to pass the, the four teach mm-hmm. or something like that, I always tell them, do a season in New Zealand or Australia <laughs> yeah. and just work, just work as much as you can yeah. and train your teaching skills with these big group lessons yeah. because it really does uh, really does help you. Yeah. And once you get it right and you can do it well, I, I personally find quite almost a sense of achievement when I finish a big group lesson and I think to myself, oh, yep, got through to everyone there. That yeah. was quite hard, yeah, but yeah. I did it. Yeah. No, it's true. It's, it's, it's really true. And you can tell the people that have kind of done big groups when we have school groups and stuff you can tell the ones they're sort of pretty relaxed about it you know I could when I um my colleague Max for example he's worked I think he's done the whole New Zealand thing or certainly the I think he might have even done the Australian thing which is even more of a sausage machine I think you know when uh, up in Victoria I can't remember it was called like Mount Buller or somewhere like that and he's done you know he's done like yeah he's done the summer there it's like 650 hours of like relentless groups and that is um that really hones your skills right how to get a group to get going you know and keep them all roughly at the same level and so that you progress with them at the same time it's just uh, it's it's really it's interesting to see those who have done that work that kind of work and I've done my fair share of picking up you know five year olds in three different languages and, and all that sort of stuff it does you know it's uh, it, it really it shows you the less glamorous side of the job as opposed to kind of carving around the mountain teaching uh, ski instructors to ski. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have heard Mount Buller is the place that, yeah, 650 hours of group lesson grinding. Yeah. But yeah, it really does, it really does hone, in your, hone in your skills. And um, I even think as well um, it helps, you know, even if you're working for a, a ski school that only does privates and you might get, um, you know, kind of three friends that book a private or something like that, mm-hmm. um, doing those times working those big groups will help you be able to manage those um, kind of, you know, semi-group private lessons that, that do occur quite yeah. regularly. No, that's right. That's 